A lot has happened over the past year. We've had announcements from British Airways, Dixon's Carphone and most recently the Marriott Hotel Group regarding data breaches. Accusations of foreign interference in both the 2016 US election and the Brexit referendum. What we don't get to hear about is the work that goes on to defend our data. In this episode of People of Tech, I'm speaking to intelligence analyst David Swan. Intelligence was foreknowledge of an adversary. I really am having somewhat of kittens tracking Russia. My job is to analyze what data they've got, who wants it, then do an analysis of it. Then you build defenses based on these are the most dangerous attackers and this is how you stop them. David Swan is a retired Army intelligence officer who now works as an intelligence analyst and is the director of the Cyber Intelligence Defence Centre. David works with the Centre of Strategic Cyberspace and Security Science, providing cyber intelligence to the CSCSS executive and contributing to training programmes. As a specialist in cybersecurity and geopolitical analysis, David talks us through his career and where his interest in cybersecurity came from. Well, I, I actually joined the Naval Canadian Naval Reserve in 1976, and I my first trade was naval communications. In 1980, I went officer in the again in the Naval Reserve, and through the winters, that's tw- uh, two evenings a week, three to four hours, training between May and or September and May. You can also get the way the Canadian system works: contract work, ranging from two weeks to some rather expansive multi-year contracts, depending what you get. In that process, I was introduced to computers. I worked in the new Naval headquarters in 1986. I did a number of postings that required me to learn a great deal about computers. In 2003, I was actually recruited out of the Navy into the Army Reserves as a, an intelligence officer and restarted my military career. I actually retired in January 2000. Uh, 13, where when I was working as a brigade intelligence officer uh, here in Western Canada. I had a parallel career. When the military had no employment for me or I was sick of the military, I simply didn't pick up any contract work, and I used my skills in the computer industry. And I started back in 1991, I guess 91, 92, simply working in customer service. And I worked from there, uh, developed into a Novell, administrator, onward to Novell Engineering and Network Design. I formed my own little uh, repair company um, supporting small businesses and and home services, which led in 2001 to me being recruited as the chief technical officer to do system design and technical engineering for a radio frequency identification startup, better known as an RFID card. And that's the square little chips you see on your credit card, your debit card, and, and banking information. That firm didn't have a happy lifespan. It died due to lack of funding, was restarted in 2006. It moved me to Alberta, where I live now. And um, my start in cybersecurity really happened when I was still part of the military. I was working in brigade headquarters in Calgary. And when there was a hack of the telecommunication system or one of our big telephone providers, I would get asked skill testing questions about what's the impact on us. Um, the other thing that happened was some of our staff would come to work and they would say, oh, we got hacked at work. And the 
brigade commander, Colonel Boley, would look at me and say, well, any impact on us, David? And that really forced me um, to start looking at computer security very seriously. In my own world, I was responsible for protecting the company intellectual property and the systems I was developing. And we had five very deliberate attacks on our IP. And uh, yeah, that really forced me to, to pay a lot of attention to cybersecurity. And it's evolved to where I am now. So you are now an intelligence analyst uh, with the Center for Strategic Cyberspace and Security Science Center. Um, what, what, is there much difference between the work that you were doing with the Army and the work you're doing now? When I was with the Army, I got cybersecurity sometimes. My big job was to, in the colloquial, was to figure out what's going to go wrong and warn the boss before it happened. So the colonel was not surprised. In Canada, the Army Reserve focuses on domestic operations plus whatever tasks are assigned. So what does that mean? One of my big intelligence coups was I predicted accurately that our brigade was going to get a phone call and we were going to have to send people to Winnipeg to help clean up after a major flood in uh, the province of Manitoba. So when I say domestic operations, looking at things inside Canadian borders and cybersecurity doesn't fall into that unless there's an impact on what we were doing. Like I said earlier, the hack of uh, TELUS, um, two-base telephone exchanges, some other things, that brought uh, cybersecurity to the fore. But most of what I do for CIDC, the Center for the Cyber Intelligence Defense Center, and CSIS is very different than what I did for the Army. The processes, the intelligence processes are the same, but the work is uh, significantly different. It, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, I'm interested in your prediction that you made that, that meant that you, well, the, the the Army was going to be needed to go to Winnipeg for, for that time. How, how does that relate to, you know, sort of the intelligence work? Was it forgive me here but it, it almost like you just predicted the weather almost if it was a flooding or something like that am i am i being very facetious there i'm sorry if i am no you're not and actually it's an excellent question and it has an application to cybersecurity. intelligence the way i was i learned it and then the way i was taught it when i became an intelligence officer was foreknowledge of an adversary now two rivers in saskatchewan had started to flood and the crest was moving along those those rivers personnel had gone out into the into the field and started to reinforce the banks and the dams in manitoba where those rivers approached were west of the city of winnipeg and i looked at where the crests were what kind of pressures were being reported in those riverbeds how much leakage there was how much work was being done and went the crest is nowhere near the people who are working like demons trying to shore up the riverbank, and they've already got huge problems. This was on a, on a Monday morning. Our prime minister is due to talk to the premier of that province on Thursday afternoon, and there's no possible way they will have the problems sorted out by then because there's going to be a lot more water. There's going to be a lot more water pressure. So when they get out of the helicopter, having flown over the flood sites, the prime minister is going to turn to the provincial premier and say, what do you need? And he's going to say manpower. 
we're going to get the phone call. And I got it right down to within an hour. The phone call was made Thursday afternoon and uh, a panic phone call from Edmonton to my commanding officer was made in Calgary and uh, the chief of staff was laughing because we'd already done our, our homework. We knew how many people we had available within 24 hours and how many trucks. Now, the application to cybersecurity is the same thing. It's foreknowledge of an adversary. Those are the key words. There, there are people out there called script kiddies who, who do stuff and they're more or less random players. But the pros, the, the people who are the deadly and dangerous attackers, they're kind of like that river. There are traces and evidence of what they do, how they do it. And a good analyst can sit down, figure out what's at risk, and then build profiles of what an attack profile would look like and start to forecast when you're in trouble. So that actual um, phone call that, that your commanding officer received, you know, you say he, he, there was a, a laugh went around because of the fact that you were already re- prepared, thanks to yourself and uh, and what you, the work that you'd actually already done. Was it therefore a case of just being you know, well, we're ready to go. And, and, and therefore, uh, you were able to go and put into place straight away uh, what you were being asked to do. And, and then also, is is that exactly something, that a position that you try to be in when it comes to cybersecurity as well, being literally ready to go as soon as you get that call of there's been a breach or there's been uh, some other form of attack going on? It doesn't start when there's a breach. It starts when you're in the planning phase. And, and again, th- this is a, a case where the analogy really works. I phoned uh, the chief of staff, the officer I reported to in, in 41 Canadian Brigade Group, on Monday morning and said, you're going to get a phone call on Thursday afternoon from our higher headquarters in Edmonton, and they're going to ask you how many troops are ready to go east and how quickly. I said, here's the reasons why. And I went through the story that I've, I've given you. So I forecast in advance. What happened Thursday afternoon was the Prime Minister got out of the helicopter, talked to the Premier. The next phone call was the Prime Minister to our Minister of National Defense. And then orders were given. Now, to apply this to cybersecurity, when I sit down with a client, my job is to analyze what data they've got, who wants it, in the hacker environment, who that boils down to, what people go looking for that, how they attack, what their methodologies, what their known practices and tactics, their procedures are, then do an analysis of it. Then you build defenses based on these are the most dangerous attackers and this is how you stop them. So you you actually start your work not when there's an attack, but long, long before there's an attack or If you're cleaning up from an attack and you want to stop the next one, then you invoke intelligence methodology to help get it sorted. I wanted to move on to uh, geopolitics, another specialist area of yours. Um, it's obviously been in the news a lot recently with allegations of interference in both the US presidency election in 2016 and, and the Brexit referendum in the UK. Obviously, both of those topics have been discussed at length in the mainstream media. So are there any other interesting things that you're seeing in geopolitics at the moment? I really am having 
somewhat of kittens tracking Russia. I, I'm seeing things, uh, I'm seeing attitudes and plays made by Russia that I, I personally haven't seen since the 1970s. Uh, a real strong return to Cold War attitudes, uh, Cold War behaviors, and that's disturbing, disturbing on a number of levels. I track China very, very carefully. The Chinese play a very different geopolitical game than anyone else in the world, and they play a much longer game. In particular, the western part of Canada is, is really receiving a, a great deal of influence from China. Some of it's fairly direct, some of it's uh, much more covert, much less visible, let's let's put it that way. But the, the big one on my radar recently was I got asked to do a security review and a, a geopolitical study for an organization that's actually in the tourism industry and wants to build a, a footprint in India. And when I did my national study, we looked at the nationalism that's rampant in India right now under Prime Minister Modi and the BJP party. And the combination of that nationalism with Hinduism, something that popped up while we were doing this was the persecution of Christians and Christian communities. And then we, when we timelined it, we discovered there was a building persecution of Muslims. India is the only place where I've seen pictures and published information on abandoned mosques, which is, which is really interesting when you look at Muslims as a culture. And this is coming from the vantage point of a guy who was training people to go to Afghanistan. So I, I know something about the Muslim faith or the Islamic faith. I, I know something of how they look at sacred sites. This really struck me as unusual. Back to India, the rewriting of history, the rewriting of who Mother Teresa was and what she did for people. I, and I'm highly aware I'm talking to a, a Brit podcast team. You should look up Calcutta these days, the removal of Commonwealth history, starting with place names, the issues around the Taj Mahal, the construction of the Ram Temple, and off Mumbai, the next statue that's being planned for India is a statue of a of a leader, a king who ran a state who is noted for beating off Muslim invaders, and that statue is pointed right at 4 million-plus Muslims who live in Mumbai. So you add it up, and you end up with a country that's being radicalized progressively by a prime minister who's got a... Um, a history of intolerance. He has a a visible connection to both nationalism and Hinduism. I, I can't say radicalism, but he's because he's careful. But it looks like he's really promoting both nationalism and Hinduism as really a dominant, more than religion, uh, culture and belief system to the objection to all other comers. And that's these are big, big changes for India. And India, given its population, what it's what they're trying to do economically, this is a, a potential huge game changer in uh, international uh, geopolitics. We 
just recently seen a ban on betting companies advertising on television during sporting events. It's due to come in with at the start of uh, this week or this month of December, some of the largest uh, betting companies in the UK like Bet365, William Hill and Labrooks, uh, they've agreed in principle to the ban themselves. GDPR has also obviously come become a major consideration for international companies such as Facebook, for example. Um, how do you see such legislation as these affecting international businesses now and in the years to come? Okay, I'm, I'm going to specifically address the, the second part of what you're asking and talk about the legislation. Now, that's a question more of law than intelligence, but here's my assessment. In general terms, globally, there's an increasing demand for accountability. If a company, if an organization stores or controls data, there is expectation by the populace, by their clients, that they should be accountable under the law for secure storage and for responsible management of that data. Even if the organization collects a bunch of stuff and doesn't use it, it doesn't matter. The expectation from the client, from the voters, is that it will be securely stored and responsibly managed. And that includes correctly secured and a good cyber set of cybersecurity defenses. Where'd this come from? Well, actually, it comes from some of your members of parliament there in the UK. It comes from the EU, from the GDPR, and recent announcements and tweaks to the GDPR, making it more aggressive and more complete. And this week, an agreement inside EU countries about data sharing, and also on the police side, for sharing criminal information inside uh, data breaches. Australia, changing legislation, wanting to get inside encryption. Again, Australia uh, wanting to make businesses more accountable for data breaches. Uh, last week, a U.S. senator said and, and announced he was drafting legislation that company CEOs, chief executive officers, whose companies had a major data breach, should face jail time. And even those slowest of moving politicians, Canadian politicians, have been making steps to make businesses and organizations accountable for the data they hold. <laughs> when Canadian politicians start to move, man, the whole world is already there. So I expect that the legal requirements around controlling information, holding information, storing information, maintaining a high cybersecurity profile are going to increase across Western nations. And anyone in Western nations that are interested in the free flow of goods and services all seem to be evolving, some faster than others, but in, in, as a general group, as a herd, they're all headed in more or less the same direction. That's really interesting, especially what you said about the um, proposed legislation uh, in, in America. Um, giving jail time to CEOs of companies who, who suffer uh, data breaches seems... Uh, I, I can completely understand and see where uh, the, the senator and, and the public, the, basically the customers of those uh, those companies, would be coming from with this. But part of your job is obviously to, you know, 
not only um, try and uh, prevent these breaches from happening for other companies and, and there'll be people within those companies themselves whose job is dedicated to keeping um, anybody that shouldn't be in there out, but almost looking at it and sort of going, well, it's the CEO's fault. I, I appreciate that, you know, somebody has to sort of pay. We, we saw a British Airways over here earlier in this year that um, someone at their top level in, in their data protection and um, uh, security uh, office actually, you know, resigned after the data breach. Now, I, I, I kind of understand that, you know, there may be human error that's involved. We don't know the whole aspect of the story and, and, and what actually led to that data breach happening. But I, I find it quite difficult, I suppose, as a human being to sort of say someone has to pay when the actual people that did this are the bad guys, are the, are, the, are the hackers, you know, wherever they're they're from. They're not being punished from what I can see and, and from what I see in the media. As soon as a, a hacking comes out, um, the announcement of the, the Marriott group that got made only at the beginning of this week, it's been going on for, for years and years and years. They've been talking about, well, what Marriott are going to do. But no one's actually gone, well, hang on a minute, are we going to actually find the people that, that have done this? To me, that just almost doesn't make sense. Okay, I, I think in in context, what the senator was talking about was where you get a, a company like Equifax that holds vast, vast amounts of data on us and its customers, our businesses, their operation is as a data broker. What investigations have found was they had multiple systems collecting the data they did not compile it securely. They did not store it securely. They didn't have good security controls. This wasn't an oversight. This was gross negligence. And in that case, for a, a chief executive officer to not say, this is our lifeblood, we are going to protect it, that's grossly negligent and deserves punishment such as jail time. At the other end of the extreme, we have the Marriott Group who purchased another hotel organization, Star Group, I think. And the actual hack was in the Star Group group of hotels into their computer system. So Marriott inherited something that had already been broken into. Very difficult to fault the uh, chief executive officer with responsibility for that one. Nobody knew, including the Star Group. The other thing is, unlike British Airways, unlike Dixon, unlike a number of hacks, the Marriott Group was an attempt to penetrate and lurk and milk access to the data over a long time period. And that's a very, very difficult kind of breach to identify and also to isolate once they're in. So I, I think the, or my sense of, of what the legislators are after are the people who are, are grotesquely negligent, who just don't learn. And there's a lot of them out there. Time for a short break now. But when we come back, David will give his cyber security tips. Content marketing is, it's our obsession. Consumers are always being bombarded with content so white papers, mostly they are used, I guess, to persuade people. When you're refreshing content, really you're updating it. 
go through your notifications every day and respond to people that are connecting with you. We've seen a real fundamental shift in the dynamics of marketing over the last 10 to 15 years. Tech Demand Weekly, the weekly podcast for marketing professionals. Now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun, I'm watching the scoreboard. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to People of Tech. This week I'm joined by intelligence analyst David Swan. One of the most interesting aspects of David's job is how he works out what information a business holds that it needs to be defending before the company is attacked and that information is retrieved by others. What this says to me is that it isn't easy to know what is and what isn't valuable to a hacker in the modern world. I asked David if it's fair to say that cybersecurity is always a step behind the cybercriminals. No, it, it, it's not fair to say that. By the way, great question. Thank you. Cybersecurity, the way many companies run it, yes, it can be behind the criminals. It does not have to be. The difference is methodology. And what I evangelize, what I teach, what I love is using an integrated planning process that incorporates intelligence. And again, I go back to the definition I use of foreknowledge of an adversary. What does that mean? When I'm talking to a company, when I'm talking to a CEO, my questions start with, what are you defending? And I regularly get Oh, we want everything defended. Well, nobody can defend everything. And even if a, a company wants to try that, the next question is, what are your priorities? What is absolutely critical? What makes your doors open on a daily basis? What slides in the background? What files do you touch? Do you have a critical client list? What makes your wheels turn? The third part of this process is, is everyone in this company, is every department in this company, in this organization participating? And what do I mean by that? Accountants drive me crazy because they'll say, well, that cybersecurity stuff has nothing to do with us. And they'll step back and they won't identify what their critical data is. They won't identify what's going on. They'll say, just stay away from us. We, we want nothing to do with you guys, and we do not want you touching our processes. And by the way, we, we need access to everything. Wrong answer. You've just built into your cybersecurity defenses a monster big hole for hackers to penetrate. Into this, what I bring is the intelligence methodology of taking the information on what your key data is, where it's stored and how it's stored, and then turning around and using that to say, okay, what are the threats? How do they work? How are they going to approach? And what are the best options to defend against their approach? And instead of reacting to a hacker attack, you can say, this kind of data needs to be segregated. It needs to be segregated internally. Remember the um, the Sony Pictures hack from a few years ago where the, the film company and all their films were exposed by North Korea? Yes, yes, I do, yeah. The films themselves were the final product that the company made m money off of. 
nobody should have had access to that except the people in direct distribution. Instead, there are many links from other Sony networks, which we know from data that came out in the investigation. Likewise, the correspondence between stars and uh, the human resources people who are trying to manage them and keep people on contract for films was accessible across the company network. Again, wow, what an invitation to get hacked. It wasn't protected properly and nobody looked at that as as a threat or a vulnerability. And, and an intelligence analyst would flag all these things and say, okay, do this differently, do that differently. This is weak and this is what an attacker will go for. That's That's an easy example of what I do for an organization. It reminds me, actually, in a previous job that I had here in the UK, um, one of the, uh, I worked for a, a pub chain called Weatherspoons, and we would receive uh, emails, marketing emails or, or whatever it would actually be. And each email actually would have, there was a color code, um, basically a traffic light system. And depending on which color it was, all depended on um, how secure that information was to be so if you came through with a with a red um traffic light showing on it then you knew that you weren't allowed to to print that email you weren't allowed to forward it you weren't allowed to basically do anything it almost came with a warning of this this email will self-destruct once you've read it kind of thing um and it it, I always kind of found it a bit amusing, to be honest. It was very, very rare that we ever actually did receive anything that, that was read. And it was uh, mostly um, things such as, uh, I don't know, if a new menu was coming out, something, you know, that was two, three weeks off in the future. We obviously didn't want anybody to find out what was going to be on that new menu until it, until the launch day. At the time, it sort of made me laugh, thinking, well, who would actually be interested in this? Now, of course, if I turn my sensible hat back on and, and really think about it, there's competitors that would want to know and, and there's there's an awful lot of other people that will want to know to have the sort of the scoop on it or just to be able to go and use that to, to better their own company, for example. The thing with the Sony Pictures hacking, which which I, I flabbergasts you in a, in a way, like you say, the the main product is the film. Um, you would think that those would be kept under lock and key, um, so that nobody could actually you know get access to them that wasn't allowed to be, and and for them to be there, just you know, basically someone just almost standing there going, "Come and take me," seems incredible. Um, and that's why I kind of think that uh, before I sort of um, uh, spoke to you the first time round or, or found out about what you do, Dave, that I, I sort of thought, how does that job sort of exist? Surely it's an obvious thing to sort of know what information you don't want other people to get to. But clearly that's not the case. No, it's not the case. And and, and that's that's the terrible irony behind this. Inside a corporate organization, each department, each sub-organization has its stovepipes, its fiefdoms, and people work very, very hard at protecting them, at growing them, and maintaining them. And I have, oh, I, I haven't added them up lately. I have quite a number of stories about chartered accountants who profess to be the process managers and subject matter experts on a remarkable number of topics. A few years ago, I I was invited to um, work with a 
large American accounting firm that does a lot of consulting. And they had hired a white hat hacker as their subject matter expert. And my response was, when hell freezes over. And and I was um, robustly chastised for my attitude. And I said, no, you don't understand. You cannot take a course to prove you're a good guy. You can pass a reliability check or you can't. But nothing validates a guy who's been a burglar from being a burglar again. You can't take a course. You can't prove that unless there has been a consummate change in personality. And until I see the proofs, I'm not a believer. No. This company, they've spent about a decade uh, investing in white hat hackers and building a, a whole consulting organization based on it. And I, <laughs> it makes no, no sense to me at all. Really? You, you can take a, a weekend course to prove that you're a certified good guy? Huh. No, not a believer. Next. Now, you were talking about your experience with the traffic light email. And in this morning's news from the United States out of Massachusetts, the Save the Children Charity Fund received exactly that kind of hack and it cost them a million dollars. They're down to about a $112,000 that uh, isn't covered by insurance that they still need to recover. But that's gone from something casual, say 10 years ago, to it's a it's big, big business. So cybersecurity is evolving, and we need to evolve our methodology and our processes for sorting it out. What advice do you have for our listeners around cybersecurity? Have you got any specific tips for them? Everyone does not need to pay for the the time of a guy like me who is an intelligence analyst. But everybody does need to do two things. And I'm talking about your your corner shop owners, um, the guy who fixes your car, your your small business people, right through to, to big organizations. The universal keys to cybersecurity start with two things, maintenance and resilience maintenance. Everyone knows if you don't put gas in your car, it won't go anywhere. You run out of gas, the car stops. The software equivalent is updates, updating your operating system, updating your software. You can never, ever treat this as automatic. Why? Because stuff happens and sometimes automatic doesn't work. No matter what operating system you're using, no matter who's making the promises, never treat it as automatic. How often should you be doing updates? Weekly. No kidding. The threat out there is bad enough that if you're doing weekly updates and you have, say, Microsoft Windows something and a security solution, an antivirus program, an anti-spyware, malware program, a firewall, you want the updates cross the board on all your stuff weekly and you want the most recent patches that will keep out the bulk of the casual attackers but it's got to be treated as something you do as a matter of routine just like putting gas in your car resilience the question behind that word is how fast can you be back in action if someone hacks or encrypts your business again consider 
a village, a small town someplace, and someone running a restaurant, someone running a corner store, someone running a garage, they get hacked. Somebody does something. Most small businesses don't have a huge amount of data that they use every day. It's probably on the order of, let's say, under 75 to 100 gigabytes. So you go and you buy a terabyte backup drive. Prices are in, in North America, prices in Canada are, are down around a less than $150 Canadian. doesn't matter. This is your insurance policy. If you go and at the end of every week, you drag your working files and make a copy on this hard drive, then you unplug it and you put it somewhere outside your business. Your business can get burned flat. The most you'll lose is a couple of days data. You don't care. If a hacker comes in and all your stuff's encrypted, you don't care. Why? Most operating systems that I have used will let you drag data from your backup device back onto a computer and bang, you've got all your operational data. So again, your two words are maintenance, keeping your, your systems and your programs up to date, and resilience, your ability to rebuild after disaster. Talking about trends there, uh, Dave, are there any that you're seeing in with the events that have happened in 2018, like BA, Marriott, Dixon's car phone, uh, that can possibly help future attacks be defended at all? Yes. As a matter of fact, I got into this exact topic yesterday morning in uh, a weekly CSIS meeting with my president, uh, Richard Zaluski, actually with uh, Mike Gillespie, who runs a company called Advent IM right there in the UK, Gary Wilson, who's another Canadian. And we spent a good 30 minutes on this exact topic. And what we discovered when we compared notes was that we're reteaching basic cybersecurity principles on a regular basis because many industries are stovepiped. They look internally for solutions. They don't look outside or they don't take outside experts as credible. So engineers may not look at the application of cybersecurity to engineering firms. As an example, I was recently at a a local chamber of commerce meeting. I was introduced to the owner of a medical, uh, medical device manufacturing company, and they make devices that report their readings over, over the internet. And I said, Hey, great, fantastic. Um, who's on your cybersecurity team? And they went, no one. Why is there a problem? Do we need one? And and I nearly screamed because medical devices have been so thoroughly hacked in the last year, starting with pacemakers, diabetes pumps. It's well documented, but these folks had never heard of it. And it's a wonderful, terrible example of industry isolation. What are we going to see? Um, We're going to see hacks going into industries where they haven't got this sorted out. I don't think the insurance industry has uh, really sorted out the fact that they carry a lot of data that is highly, highly prized by hackers. The legal profession. I've seen some attacks in Canada wander through law firms and not 
really nothing came of it at all. No changes affected. So I'm waiting to see data breaches across more industries where they really haven't got it sorted yet. I don't think we've seen the worst to strike in particular maritime transport, and that's a place where hackers are already working. I think that will be definitely an industry in the next year or two that that just gets pasted again. Do you see more uh, breaches being uh, announced? Uh, We were obviously, we've already talked about uh, the Marriott Group's uh, hacking that's actually been going on for for years. I think it started in 2014, they got it down to. Do do you expect more of these, um, these, these attacks to actually be coming to light over the next, say, six months or so? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When Marisk was hacked, they lost ports and shipping systems, not just ships, but the ability to uh, make up, to run a port operation. And I think in industry, we're going to see more of that type of hack. It may not have as many people inside it. So you and I may not be personally affected, but the industry will just get trashed because they either lose control of their operation or because of the loss of their data, the loss of their intellectual property, the loss of their trade secrets and processes. And I think we'll see more of that type of hack. As for personal information, there's no let up in, in the demand for it on the, uh, on the dark web and by hackers. And it's actually getting used more, more carefully, more thoughtfully. You guys should be familiar with the London Blue Group operating out of Nigeria. And right now, they are a great example of what I'm talking about because it is a Nigerian hacking group that researches financial institutions, many of them in the UK. They look for executives that they can collect a lot of data on. They they do a lot of research, and then they mount targeted phishing expeditions against those executives till they click on the wrong thing, and they own the the, the target's desk. And... That level of attack is is what we're seeing coming out of the top level groups. It's sophisticated. It's harder to uh, to prepare for. It's harder to be ready for, and the damage they do is, is can be phenomenal. So I ask all of my guests uh, this final question: How do you switch off from your working life? Do you have any tips for your peers on doing so? <laughs> I am I am rotten at switching off. I I'm one of those uh, personalities and people who's tends to be always on. I, I can say at, at uh, my ripe old age that I'm actually starting to work at turning off. I love to read. I love to spend time with my wife. Uh, I have a 16-year-old son, so that requires me to pay attention to him and not think about my computer, although he's uh, he's got his own YouTube channel and designs levels for uh, the game Portal 2. He's quite an interesting cat. So yeah, I'm, I'm learning to work at switching off, turning off the electronics, doing something that, that engages me that I can immerse myself in so I turn my brain off. My thanks to David Swan there for an incredibly interesting chat. I'm not exaggerating when I say I could have spoken to him for at least another hour. Our next episode will be out on January the 2nd and is with one of David's employers, Rich Zalewski. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with your peers. I'll see you next time for more People of Tech.